Let's pray, asking the Spirit of God to illumine and open our hearts to the glories of his word. Father, we come before you, and we recognize, um, and it's humbling, and leaves us a little out of control, that there is absolutely nothing we can do or accomplish on our own. There's nothing I can do to change my own heart, let alone one other person's heart. We are completely reliant upon your spirit to not only give us intellectual understanding, because it's one thing to have the information, it's another thing to have the word applied to our hearts that actually changes us. And to think that's what you're doing. You are conforming us to the likeness and to the image of Christ. And so, Father, I pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work to grant success to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word which this morning, as we close out our series that we've been doing uh, through the summer months on the Psalms of Ascents, is Psalm 131. So, friends, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Charles Spurgeon had a quote of this particular psalm. He said, this psalm, Psalm 131, is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I think I agree with the good Mr. Spurgeon. Now, why would that be the case? Well, I like how Old Testament professor Mark Futado put it in his exposition of this particular psalm. He says, we live in a noisy world. External noises bombard our ears daily. The noise of jets and freeways, lawnmowers and sirens. Then there are all the internal noise of deadlines and commitments and activities. At a deeper level still is the noise of anxiety and fear and uncertainty and guilt. The problem is not one of finding a time and place to be alone. The problem is how to find quietness for the soul in the midst of all of life's noises. Inner quietness in the middle of a noisy world is possible, and Psalm 131 shows the way. Do any of you need quietness of soul? A calmness of our lives. We're not talking about a calmness that makes us passive, lethargic, apathetic, or inactive. But we're talking about a calmness to our lives that is truly what the Bible calls true freedom. It's a confidence and a poise that will allow us to live confidently, moving towards in love, God and others. God and neighbor. This psalm, which is the final in our series, and the psalm of ascents, is a psalm that was composed by King David, and it's a psalm of confidence. The genre of this particular psalm is that it is a confidence or a trust psalm. It's encouraging the people of God to put their trust and confidence in the Lord. In one sense, its New Testament counterpart is Matthew 18. Matthew 18, where Jesus calls a child to himself. In answer to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The psalm encourages us to have that kind of childlike spirit 
that kind of confident trust of cultivating quietness and calming our lives in a noisy world. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, I see the vision. I'm there. You know what question now hits me? How in the world do I begin to do that? How in the world do I begin to tackle calming my I would like to be confident in a noisy world. And the right kind of confident, not an air of superiority, not a cockiness, not an arrogance, but a poise, a security, a confidence, where the external noises, the internal noises, and then those deeper still noises, the nagging noises. Am I good enough? Am I okay? Will I be fine? Will I be secured? Are answered by a confident trust in the grace. What do we sing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I love the version that Carl chose because what it says, my chains are gone. What are our chains? They're everything that hinders us from this calm, quiet soul, this calm, quiet, confident life. How do we begin to do this? How do we cultivate this quietness and calm in a noisy world? The text tells us two things. Two disciplines, if you will, two necessities that we have to learn to intentionally practice if we're going to have this kind of rest, this kind of spiritual rest. Even if we are very active and very busy, we can do so still with a poise and a confidence that says, I come and quiet my soul like a weaned child with its mother. The two disciplines are, one, the necessity of cultivating a humility, and two, the necessity of cultivating contentment. Two things that are absolutely necessities if we're going to calm our lives. Look with me at verse 1, and here's the necessity of cultivating humility. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Okay, let's first of all understand the poetry, the Hebrew poetry going on here, because verse 1 consists of two poetic lines. The first line has kind of two sections. They're called, the if you want to learn some Hebrew poetic technicalities, they're called kola, which is the plural for colon, okay? Two kola make up one line. Like that, huh? Some of you feel like, gee, I came to church this morning and learned Hebrew poetry. Remember last week when I told you I did well in photography and gym class? I, I did really bad in English literature and poetry class. So I kind of had to share what I learned about Hebrew poetry. I'm a little proud of myself. I'll repent later. But it's two lines. And the first line says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. There's colon number one. And colon number two are, my eyes are not raised too high. Okay? The first one, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Now both of them, what is he exposing? The psalm there is exposing and coming against the sin of pride. He's basically saying you have to cultivate humility. You have to be against the sin of pride. And I wonder sometimes how often we are actually against the sin of pride. Okay? I think of two things. One, the quote from St. Augustine when he was asked, what is the essence of Christianity? And he answered, well, number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. And then I think... We say we believe in the inerrancy, the infallibility, the authority of the Word of God. Part of me goes, do we really? Because do we know what the Word of God speaks about, pride and humility? There are a lot of things God hates. He says, this is an abomination to me. I'm not fond of this. 
But you know what he says about the proud? He says, God opposes the proud. Do you know the difference between I hate something and I oppose something? One is, you know, it's kind of like me looking at spinach, and I go, ooh, I hate spinach, which I have hated spinach since I was a small kid. It'd be another thing if I said, I oppose spinach. I'm going to get in its face, and I'm taking it to the ground. There are many things in the Bible God hates, but he opposes the proud. James chapter 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, after Peter has exhorted the elders, he now says, to all of you, to the entire congregation, I exhort you, clothe yourselves with humility, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let me ask you this question. How much do you prioritize humility in your spiritual life? Like how much is it an intentional thing that you are attempting and resolving to cultivate humility in your life? Or do you just say, well, I'm humble. Of course, I'm humble. I prayed it. I'm humble. Or are you working to cultivate humility? Look at the text. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too hard. See, what is the heart? The heart is the center of the self. It's the character. It consists of the mind, the affections, the will, the emotions. The heart is the source of our being. Which is why in Proverbs chapter 4, we're exhorted in wisdom literature, skill in life literature, guard your heart above all else, for from it flow the issues of life. Then he says, my eyes. What does he mean by my eyes? My sight, my focus, what absorbs me, what consumes me. He says... My attention, my eyes are not raised too high. I am not haughty. The literal Hebrew is my eyes are not lifted up. It's a way of saying, in the idiom of the Hebrew, commentators mention, it's a way of saying, I don't look down my nose on other people. There is no air of, or feeling of superiority This is humility. It's illustrated by Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Jesus illustrates in this story exactly what it looks like. You want to see in flesh what it looks like to look down on other people. Jesus says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And we would never do that, right? We never trust in ourselves that we're righteous. But then he says and treated others with contempt. Ooh. Have we ever done that? Treated others with contempt? That's the demonstration, if you would. That's the, what it looks like in the flesh that you do trust in your own self. Functionally, not for yourself. And then he goes and he tells the story. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I know we get offended if we're called a Pharisee, But maybe we should look, do we have any of these pharisaical characteristics about us? Because the Pharisee, standing by himself, Pharisees will always be isolated, by the way, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My eyes are not raised too high. I know we all like to say we're not like the Pharisee. We don't trust our own righteousness for our salvation, which might be true enough. But friends, do you look down your nose on others? Maybe saying, I'm glad I'm not like the other guy who has the wrong theology. I'm not like the other guy who doesn't look like me or act like me or think like me. I'm not like them who make such foolish mistakes with their money or do thus and thus. I'm not like the... If you are looking down, and contempt is what? Contempt is an attitude. Contempt is an attitude. It's something that comes. That's why he says, my heart is not lifted up, and I don't raise my eyes too high. See, this is the test that Jesus gives. Relationships are always the test for who or what we are functionally trusting. See, the wisdom literature consistently depicts the wicked as those who have their eyes lifted up. Proverbs 30, there are those, how lofty are their eyes, notice the same language, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. David then moves from the inside to the outside, where in the second line, moving to action, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, his humility leads him not to strive for, not to grasp after things that are beyond him. In other words, his humility leads him to recognize his limitations. He says, I do not occupy myself. I'm not consumed with things that are beyond me. I recognize things that I simply don't know. I don't know all the truth. Yes, God's truth is God's truth. I don't understand it all. I recognize my limitations. It's like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, which John Calvin said was his favorite verse. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. In other words, it takes a humility to say, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm not certain And I'm going to be disciplined enough to say, I'm not certain of my understanding, my interpretation of the truth. David says, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great for me, things that are beyond me, things that are too marvelous for me. Now, this psalm is not speaking against having a high position or a position of leadership or a position of authority. You know what's speaking against? It's speaking against blind ambition. It's warning us of the danger of what it can do to our lives. In other words, it's warning of the dangers of power unless our lives, unless our hearts are being shaped by what did Augustine say? Humility, humility, and humility. See, David's life is actually an example of this. In the beginning of his life, think of the beginning of his life when he didn't grasp for things that were beyond him. Think of the times when King Saul was chasing after him and David, 1 Samuel 24 and 26 tells us as David spared his life. But then once he was king, later in life, what do we do? We see him abusing his power in the case of Bathsheba, in the account of his taking Bathsheba. One last thing before I move on to the next point, for this is very convicting to think about what are we focusing on, what occupies our attention. 
And again, I'm indebted to Mark Futado to emphasizing this, but it's actually an important point in all of our discipleship. And that is that this takes intentional effort. Paul said to the church at Philippi, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, let me mention a couple things about that verse. First of all, you can't work out what hasn't first been given you or working in. Working out means you possess it. So what do you possess? Salvation, and you possess it as a gift. So part of the things in recognizing in our effort, our effort has to be towards the right thing. And let me tell you what the right thing isn't. Don't work out any effort towards your justification. That is given you. You are accepted. You are free. You are beloved. You are adopted. You are forgiven. You are declared righteous. But friends, we have to learn to connect the dots. That is the very thing. That security is the very thing that allows us, knowing you're declared righteous, and that righteousness, because it's given to you in Christ, can't be removed, is what lets you work out your salvation. You don't have to be defensive. You can look at yourself and say, yeah, you know what? I look down on others. My eyes are lifted up. I am haughty. I am proud. You can admit it, and you can look at the specific areas where you're proud, where you're haughty, where you're arrogant, where you are like, not saying uh, but like a Pharisee, treating others with contempt, trying to prove yourself. Those are all ways we belie our understanding of justification. And we have to be intentional in cultivating humility. Why Dr. Furtado points out, he says, I do not occupy myself. He says that in the Hebrew is a resolve or a commitment. And when the psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted my soul, the Hebrew there is in the form of an oath. It stresses the need for our taking intentional steps to experience inner quietness and peace. And what are some of those intentional steps? Well, he mentions simply two. For one is the willingness to be honest with yourself. And see, friends, that's what justification gives you. It gives you the freedom to be honest with yourself. You can admit when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you're insecure, when you're uncertain, when you're doubtful. Admit your tendency to denial. Admit your defensiveness. And then second, recall and apply Scripture. See, again, I want to press this home. Do we really believe in the power of Scripture? See, the psalmist did. That's why he said, if I have stored up your word in my heart. And I want you to picture that image. I have stored up. Much like we would store up savings for retirement, food for the winter, whatever it is we're storing up. It's putting things upon one another. He says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So that when you're anxious, you might be able to, at ready notice, go to Matthew chapter 6 that says, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear, the clothing you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow, but doesn't God 
care for you so much more than they? Occupy yourself with seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And oh, by the way, all these things are going to be added to you anyway. Or when you're afraid, recall and apply. Do you believe in the power of Scripture? Apply Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? The problem is if we don't know Scripture. You're human. You're going to have these emotions. You're going to have these things. What do you have to apply to it? Dr. Furtado says, humility is the opposite of arrogance, and arrogance and quietness cannot occupy the same space. A heart that is arrogant is usually a heart that feels insecure, insignificant, or out of control. Such a heart looks through eyes to find ways to satisfy the deep longings for security, significance, and control. Arrogance will always increase the noise level within. Humility and quietness, by contrast, our roommates. How can we cultivate this kind of humility? What do we take? This is convicting, isn't it? I know before first service, I prayed with Carl and Al, and we were praying, and Carl prayed for me as not only I had prepared the word, but as the word prepared me. And I thought it was a great and appropriate prayer. And I thought to myself, do you know how the word prepared me this week? It kicked me in the tail. (laughs) That's how I was feeling with this, do you cultivate humility? Do you know what we need? We need the second part of the text that cultivates contentment and true spiritual rest. Look with me at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Now remember, we have to be intentional. That's in the form of an oath. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Okay, we need to recognize the analogy in poetry, the simile that's being used here. We need to understand the analogy here. Tremper Longman says, if we're to understand this, we have to look at the nature of the relationship between a mother and a weaned child. And he says a weaned child, and it's important that it's a weaned child because what does it do? It now is able to rest comfortably in its mother's arms while a nursing baby who's not yet weaned is still fussy and restless and demanding. And here is the psalmist providing a picture image of the kind of trustful confidence that he is now experiencing. How can we rest like this in our mother's arms? How can we experience this? Friends, there's only one way. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. See, and that's what pride will do to you. It will weary you and burden. When it is burdening to always say it's somebody else's fault. That is a tiring thing to be able to say. It's their fault. They're this way. They did this. It's not me. They did this. That's exhausting. That will never provide you rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are tired of that who are weary from that, and I will give you rest. Do you realize that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing to face his greatest human crisis, the crisis of his trial and his death, his suffering and his humiliation, do you know what he was doing? He was calming and quieting his soul. And how was he doing it? Like everything he did in his life, he was doing it for you and I. 
And in the garden, what was he doing? He was wrestling with his own soul. He was agonizing, sweating drops of blood until he was able to calm and quiet his own soul, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As he said in the Gospel of John, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, how do we do this? We have to realize what the gospel gives us, and the gospel gives us rest. But we only get that rest by being united to him. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, what is true of a weaned child? They are content, they are full, they are satisfied. Derek Kidner points out in his excellent commentary, he says, the point of a weaned child it is that no longer is it fretting for and demanding what it used to find indispensable. See, there's the key. Practically speaking, what do we find indispensable? What is it that we're saying, that our souls are saying, I'll only be calmed, I'll only be full if I have that. If I have that power, if I have that control, if I have that approval, if I have that acceptance, if I have that significance. See, what do you seek fullness in? What do you say, I have to have that? Or if I only had that, I would be full and satisfied. The point of a weaned child is that it no longer says, I have to have that because it has everything it could possibly want resting in its mother's arms. Isaiah chapter 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Yet even these may forget. Yet the promise of the gospel is, Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And friends, what is the fruit of this kind of rest? What is the fruit of this spiritual rest? Look at the text. Look at how Psalm 131 ends. David exhorts, what does he do? He ministers to and he loves the community. He says, O Israel, hope, wait on the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, he's turning to the community, encouraging them to hope in the Lord. Freedom and security will always lead to a life of love. That is why the gospel always leads to a life of love. That is why faith always works through love. True quietness of soul, not having to be defensive. Calmness of your life, true spiritual rest will always bear the beautiful fruit of a life of radical, committed love. You are free. Your needs are met. What you used to find indispensable, you had to have, are met in Christ. You are filled in Him. Guess what that means? You don't have to strive and grasp for others. You don't have to look at others with what can they give you? What can they give you in return? You are now free to be able to say, what do you need? How can I come alongside you? How can I love you? How can I help you? What are your needs? Is it a word of confrontation? I'll give you that. Is it a word of compassion? I'll give you that. Is it simply coming alongside, saying nothing, learning the discipline of shut up? 
and just offering presents. I'm free to do that. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And this freedom is not for you to go off doing whatever you want. This freedom is for the purpose of being a body of love. That's the purpose of freedom. That's the purpose of rest. That's what it means to come and quiet our soul. That's the rest Jesus gives us in the supper. As with the greatest hospitality in the world... He's inviting us to his meal, his table. He's hosting his meal and he's saying, I'm the bread of life. Feed on me for the rest that you need. Father, we pray that we would learn to cultivate both humility and contentment. That we will learn to cultivate the spiritual rest that you give us in the gospel. A rest that says my significance is not in what I know. My significance is not in what I do. My significance is not in what I achieve. That I don't have to occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous with me. But I resolve to calm and quiet my soul like a child in his mother's arms. Oh, that we would rest, really rest in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.